everyone, and welcome. This is Seek Sustainable Japan. I'm JJ Walsh, your host in Hiroshima, Japan. And today, once again, I have the pleasure of talking with the amazing Alex Kerr. And today, we are catching up on the amazing Kominka Summit that we were both at at the end of April. Thank you so much again for joining, Alex. It's my pleasure always to talk to you. Wonderful, and it was so nice to meet you in person. Yes, I know. I felt like I knew you already. Right? <laughs> yeah. was, I have this great picture here. It was so fun, um, and it just the Kaminka Summit. And I, I would love to hear your overall takeaway from the Kaminka Summit in a minute. But for me, it was just invigorating to be around so many people who were so enthusiastic about reusing old things, remodeling old houses. And there's so much connection with uh, community building, social impact, as well as environmentalism in terms of taking care of these old homes and moving to the rural areas. Wasn't it exciting to be there? Oh, it was extraordinary. The, the breadth and, and the variety of the people that came. And, I mean, we had... Uh, plasterers, sake maker next to me, Jacopo was uh, building with his own hands, um, uh, Hinoki Budo, you know, uh, uh, cedar baths. Uh, we had real estate agents and we had ho house thatchers. I mean, it, they were all there. You sort of felt that this is almost like the cult. <laughs> Had we all finally got together and met each other, right. uh, and but, there was yeah much enthusiasm in the air. I mean, this thing was Woodstock. Yeah. Oh, you you said that right. That's yeah, a great quote. This was the Woodstock of Kominka. Yeah, I saw a wonderful interchange between you and Stuart, one of the organizers, and Stuart was talking about after the Kominka Summit event. The locals were so happy, and especially the people that had opened their homes to people yes. viewing their mm. own minka, mm. um, which I think was a really special part of the event, that people could go and see minka for sale or minka which have been renovated, talk to the owners about what they did. Mm. And then he said, um, this is something without precedent. And then you were saying absolutely something without precedent and the reason it was such a success is because people were so authentically interested it wasn't organized by government no. or a business right that's right there was no bureaucracy behind this and so often these events especially when they are quote unquote international <laughs> japanese events uh it, it's 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 all a kind of a potemkin internationalization you know not the real thing and there are a lot of rules and regulations and, and so on. And this had none of that. It was wide open. It was incredibly international, but in the most real grassroots kind of way. And also international in uh, and the part of the reality was that the houses that were open to us are the locals of Hanase, you know? Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Um, we have this group group shot here at the last day. You can see the crowd uh -huh. that was here till the very end on the steps where they had the Minka Mall. Now, the Minka Mall was another really interesting part, right? That, you that had, was a very smart idea. 
So you had the related businesses and service organizations that support people moving out to the rural areas mm -hmm. and getting set up. They had a, a little kids make your Minka project going on, which was really fun. But it was also this area that I met um, who I talked to on last Friday, Andrea Carlson, and they're doing such exciting work with dismantling unwanted yes. minka and sending them to other countries. That's right. So there was so many brand new ideas I'd never even thought of with so many amazing people at this summit. Amazing. No, it really covered the range. And so you had, of course, the dismantling of minka and moving them abroad uh, has been going on for some time. And uh, Takeshita-san up in Kamakura moved a number of them to Hawaii, to the West Coast. But of course, we're now, it's almost like a, a scale of magnitude, more activity in all these areas, whether it's sending them abroad, whether it's people restoring them in different parts of Japan. And the information that's out there is also at another level, right? Uh, because yeah. you've got these YouTube uh, influencers and you have uh, people that are doing carpentry or whatever, and they write about it and show how it's done. And then people write, uh, for example, um, Stuart's uh, Kominka Facebook. It's amazing the information you can pick up there. Yeah, it really is. And I was just looking through today before we went live and everybody uh, offering people a stay to help out with a project or asking advice. What should I do? I'm, I have this problem. And there's loads of insiders and loads of experts who are very active. Even yourself, I see you popping in there and giving advice and encouragement. And I, I think that's that's one of the exciting things is that that support network that was yes. lacking before, right? And I don't think it was, it, no, it was completely not there before. The, the breadth of information wasn't there. The support wasn't there. <clears throat> and it's it has been growing, but I feel we've reached, and, and that's what this Kominka Summit sort of symbolized. We've reached a, a tipping point when the whole thing is now entering another stage. And you were talking about that in your keynote. Uh, you were connecting it to the Minge movement, the folk yes. craft movement. Uh, well, because, do you want to explain that idea a little uh, bit for people that, who couldn't join? Uh, that's well. What I planned, to, what I wanted to do in that keynote, I actually had a bit of a problem <laughs> uh, uh, coming up with this keynote because I realized that for decades now I've given hundreds of talks. And it's almost always to, uh, you know, officials of local towns or blue-suited groups of this, that, and the other. And I'm trying to convince them, you know, Machia or Kominka are worth saving. And you can actually make them beautiful, comfortable, and so on. And this group, you don't have to say those things. They already know it. And they're already doing it with their own hands. So I had to kind of tear that talk up <laughs> and go back to zero and think, okay, what would they not know? And so I thought, let's talk about the history of it. Let's go back and see who were the first people to really do this. And when you look back, you see that it began with the Minge movement. So that's why I started there. And the Minge movement, which was started by Yanagida uh, um, um, uh, Tetsuo and uh, uh, Hamada Shoji, famous potter, working with the, the famous British potter, uh, they 
had this idea that Japan needed to get back to its folk roots and needed to get away from the fancy, fancy tea ceremony and the elaborate kimonos and the, the Imari China and all that to rough hewn things, uh, minge, which are something like the shape of an ax or a knife, uh, uh, timbers, uh, unglazed pottery, bizen pottery, that sort of thing. Bizen had practically died and disappeared until the minge movement came back and rediscovered it. Right, And in that process, it naturally led them to houses. It didn't start with houses, though, which is a, something to think about. It, it began with pottery. And Hamada Shoji, as far as I can tell, was one of the first in the 20th century to move his studio into a huge thatched house, a kominka. And it sort of started with that. And so, yes, uh, minge, and to this day, I think people restoring minka, are also often involved in tilling the land around their house. They might collect big old buckets and all those sorts of things that the, the Minge pioneers loved. Yeah. And I saw so many elements of that. I, I want to just mention, you did a beautiful talk. You were first in this series, which I love, about the secret of things. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this cinnabar bowl. Yes. And this has so many parallels, I think, to what enthusiasm we see in the Minka movement now, maybe. Um, so this is a, maybe an ordinary looking bowl. But when you look more carefully, when you understand the intention of it, yes, it's, it's very special and meaningful, right? That's right. And that applies to these houses. And in fact, you know, I often think, why is it that the people who have lived in these houses or owners of these houses just abandon them or want to tear them down or walk away from them? And it's because, they, oh, hey, there's Stuart's house, uh, because they they literally, it's like having a car that you don't have the key to. They don't know how to live them, in, live them anymore, and they literally don't know what they stand for. They don't know what these houses are. and uh, And the people who do know which are the people who were at this summit, I mean, they can make magnificent places to live, Airbnb, restaurants, whatever, out of these houses. Yeah. I'm showing the Highland Inn. I noticed yeah. you had a photo of that that place too. Well, and I went inside and, and met the couple. It was a beautiful remodeled place. Yeah. Yeah. I hope you could understand that thick Scottish accent. <laughs> <laughs> it was wonderful. They had Scottish and Australian and Japanese accents all rolled into that, one. That's I loved right. it. And the but, house um, is magnificent. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Really gorgeous. And there is one feature that I think you would appreciate, Alex, as someone who also remodels old houses into guest houses. Mm -hmm. I really appreciated all the small touches where you didn't see the usual plastic cone. You didn't yeah. you didn't no. see the air conditioner unit. No. They used the Japanese aesthetic to cover anything that might be unsightly. And yeah. I noticed this at your place in Chiyoti as well. It was really well done here. Well, that's key. And in fact, Tanizaki, way back when he wrote uh, In Praise of Shadows, had commented on that, 
that these uh, modern industrial materials just don't go with old Japanese interiors, but there is a way, if you think about it, to disguise them. Sometimes you can even bring them out a little bit. I notice in Tawaraya in Kyoto, uh, where the, the Madam of Tawaraya just has exquisite taste on these things. And she wraps her fire extinguishers in beautiful washi paper. So she doesn't hide them. The fire extinguishers are there, as they, of course, you don't want to hide your fire extinguisher, right? If you yeah. don't mind, need it. But she's turned it into a thing of beauty. And so you can do that if you just put a little thought to it. Yeah. I, I often think that, right? Like sometimes you'll see the beautiful bamboo, bamboo barrier. Um, and then other times in a beautiful place, you'll see the plastic cone. And you'll mm. be like, let's go back to that bamboo barrier. That's yes. so much better. <laughs> and, and oddly enough, and this is the counterintuitive part of it, quite likely the bamboo barrier will last longer than the bamboo cone. I mean, bamboo than the uh, plastic cone. Isn't that crazy? Just yeah, as, it, it, brittle and breaks. Yeah. Oh yeah, and filthy, dirty, and you know. And one of the things people don't realize is that those tin roofs that they put on top of the uh, thatch, they actually uh, don't last as long as the thatch. They I'm have to be amazed by more. that. And I think it was John Stolermeyer who was another. Uh, amazing person to see at the event doing his carpentry traditional yes. style. Um, he often talks about the wooden tori gates, like uh -huh. that they they would last longer sometimes than metal or other oh, yeah. materials, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Um, there was a beautiful house which I saw a bunch of people commenting on. Did you have a chance to see this one? I didn't. I I, I remember seeing it but i didn't go inside it looks, so looks charming she bought it remodeled already oh. and a lot of people were commenting on it uh, she had kept it really simple in the design mm. the remodelers did such a beautiful job in bringing in lots of light so this mm. is the Which kitchen is here you can don't that you is, hate that about Japanese that is, houses in, oh, in the dungeon boy. for the chicken, the kitchen? <laughs> it's always a struggle to get light. And I, you know, I've done so many things to do that. You open up windows, uh, skylights, uh, there, and there are many, uh, there, there, they've got one. Uh, there yeah. are many clever ways to do it, but you have to really think sometimes. Yeah, so this was in the same house. She had this great skylight. And uh, it was really clever how it was done through the thatch, through the thatch roof at the top. Um, well, that that would be a challenge. I'd be that. fascinated to know how they did that. Uh, no, not that one. Yeah, I might be able to find it later. But um, yeah, she had all these nooks and crannies. She had like a book, a book area where a tiny little room you can't use. So she changed it into like a beautiful library. Uh -huh. um, you know, just being really creative about use of space, very mm. clever. Well, that's what these houses do. They challenge you in that way. And Japanese houses have this particular property of basically not having walls, <laughs> uh, or very few unmovable walls. And so if you slide the doors here and there or flip something left or right, you're able to create new spaces and change the spaces in ways that are, could be more useful to you. 
Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Like even um, adding those uh, folding panels in the front, you could change or hide something unsightly, but you could also change the atmosphere of a place. I noticed you do that in Chiodi with your sliding panels or your calligraphy, oh, yes. right? Yeah, yeah. And it's actually in traditional houses, it's usually not a matter of hiding something unsightly. It's just about creating a certain ma, that's that old you know word that means the empty space between things. And uh, you can, for example, they would put a, a folding screen beside where somebody was sleeping. I do that when I have guests come to stay in Shiori as well. And what it does, it gives them a little bit, a sense of privacy. It's not really a room, you know, but it's a kind of, it gives you the illusion of a certain space. And that's what those sliding doors are. I, I find it amusing that in Japanese temples or in a house like Chiori where there's no ceiling, just by sliding the wall that's just head height, those sliding doors, you get this illusion that you're in a separate room. When I everything guess that's the idea of the curtain on the airplane, right? The curtain around you or in the hospital. Yes. Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what this is. And so Japanese houses uh, are rich in, in those sort of spatial uh, transformations. Yeah. Uh, we also had very good weather. So the whole facility was outdoor and indoor that was where the minka mall was there was a big green area mm. um there was only one day with rain one or two days but it it, it was a little drizzle went. but it, it wasn't much yeah. actually it's partly because of that big lawn that made me think of woodstock <laughs> that makes sense yeah um you got a very special award and some very special sake when you gave your keynote uh, the award looked like it was handmade from a local yes. artisan, is that right? I was quite touched by that. I have to admit the sake is not around anymore. <laughs> We've already drunk it. Uh, what it, what that was is uh, it was made by a lady right there in Hanase, and it's made of straw, rice straw, wara. But it's in the shape, if you look at that kind of trapezoidal shape, that's the shape of a, of a thatched roof. I was quite surprised and touched by this. I... I had never expected anything like that to happen. And I'm quite moved and grateful to Stuart and all the other organizers. Oh, it was amazing. It's a really lovely gift. And it was just, it was just a wonderful atmosphere, every part of it, all the talks and everything. Um, now, one of the uh, people that I, I found really interesting to see you and Tokyo Lama together, uh -huh. right? Yes, well, I mean, uh, Tokyo Lama, a.k.a. Jaya Thirstfield, has really put Minka on the map internationally. Uh, I actually went to his talk, and he said he's been seen by 15 million people. I mean, you know, this is serious. And, 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 uh, and so he's a real mover and shaker in this world. And one of the things that he does is he shows people, it's the DIY part of it, how you do it how you polish a floor, how you fix something broken. What do you do about tiles? Da, da, da. He physically shows them how to do it. And that's something we haven't really had before. And uh, it's really interesting. So he's, he's sort of a master of that. And uh, in fact, in that talk, he also talked about practicalities like leases and deeds and registrations and that kind of stuff, which is another thing that nobody ever used to talk about or tell you, right? And yeah. so those, uh, he, he's, uh, he's someone I really want to get to know better. 
Yeah, no, it was really good. And his talk, it was interesting at the end, everybody was asking, can you really make a living just from YouTube? <laughs> and yes. he actually, he's making a go of it now. So if yeah. you become popular enough in your niche enough, but very interesting to a worldwide audience, it was seeing you and, and Jaya together was really like, wow, this passing the baton to the YouTube generation. I love it. Yeah, that's right. Well, you're another influencer. <laughs> oh, I don't, I don't, I guess, I don't know. Um, not, not at the same level as Jaya. That's just amazing. Millions of people learning about Minka through him. Wonderful. You're, get, you're getting there. <laughs> uh, we have some great comments. Uh, Neko Hakase uh, from YouTube. She says, hello, Alex. This is Ricky from Raku Raku in Kyoto. Sorry, I couldn't join you guys. Uh, let me see if I can put it on screen. Sorry, I couldn't join you guys out there. Do you think the pandemic contributed to the great turnout at the summit this year? That's an interesting way to put it. Um, yeah, maybe it did. Uh, certainly, you could say that the, the kind of the boom that happened happened exactly during the pandemic, right? Uh, Tokyo Lama, he, he first uploaded at the end of 19, 2019. Uh, uh, Stuart was telling me that his uh, email, uh, Facebook page had like, you know, nine members or something. And suddenly during the, in the next year, from 2020 to 2021, shot up first to 600, now 1,700, all during this period when people weren't supposedly traveling. So it is possible that it contributed, that it actually added to it. And I'm not exactly sure why. Uh, maybe people focused more on what they where they really wanted to live and what they really wanted to be, something like that. Um, yeah, the pandemic is a factor. Yeah, I think so too. And there's also that added accessibility, the ability to telework, right? That wasn't yeah. possible before, um, yes. became easier. So you could work from anywhere. Why not a beautiful Minka house in a yes. beautiful yeah. countryside area, right? And I think uh, the foreigners have been doing that for a while, but, you know, Japanese companies were notoriously uncomfortable with uh, having people stay away from the office until finally, very reluctantly, they went with it. And there are now hundreds of these Japanese companies that, that uh, are having people work at home. And even as the pandemic cools down, they're stick sticking with that. And so Jap young Japanese who never really could have done it before can now do it. So that's another thing to keep in mind is this is not only a foreign led movement. There are a lot of young Japanese doing it. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the other uh, interesting things I hear for people making the transition from city to rural is mm. the attractive part of growing your own food. Um, yes. That in the cities, they felt really cut off from healthy food and what happens in an emergency and all the stores are empty. And we sure. saw that a little bit during the pandemic. Yes. So I think people had a feeling that that could happen again in the future. Maybe I should grow something, right? Yeah. And it's fun, too. Yeah. yeah. Once, you, once you start gardening, it becomes an addiction. And then from gardening, you're onto farming. And then it gets really serious. And if you're like Vincent, then you end up with tractors and trucks. And oh my gosh, he's a serious farmer. 
Now, this is a question you often get uh, from Black Tengus asking about the tatami floors. Is it a disadvantage to a minka with tatami floor as opposed to a minka with a solid pine floor, apart from the fact that tatami needs to be repaired every so often? Um, I don't think there's any disadvantage, and tatami will last an awfully long time. Uh, when I when I moved into my house here in Kamioka, my tatami dated back to Edo, literally, and the, and they lasted until about ten years ago, which meant another forty years that I was here. So tatami, it, you know, as long as you don't do anything particularly destructive, they're very strong, and I don't know that. The, Frankly, if they go for 140 years, I would say don't worry about it, <laughs> at least in your lifetime. I uh, love reading in in one of your books, was it Lost Japan? You're talking about tatami was only used for the highest class or the most important leader to put them a little bit higher than everybody else and everybody yeah, else originally. out on the wood floor. Is that right? right? Yeah. Well, Japan began with, with polished wooden floors. That was the beginning. And then they started, they created tatami as a way to differentiate between, uh, you, you know, the top dog and everybody else. The other people had to sit on the floor. And, but eventually, by early Edo, tatami had covered most floors. And so ha, kominka that actually begin with uh, um, wood floors are really rare. And so my house in Ia is, is absolutely exceptional in that they never had tatami. And it was all wooden floors, and that's because they had the Idori and also because they were so poor. So normally you start with tatami, except maybe an, an area around the Genkan or the Doma. And so then the question is, okay, do you keep tatami or do you uh, lay in flooring, remove the tatami and put in flooring? Uh, under the tatami, you will not normally find nice flooring. It's rather rough wood. So typically uh, what you do is uh, you put, uh, you know, kind of nice flooring there. And then you can, it's easier to put chairs and tables. It allows you a little more flexibility than tatami. Yeah. When we moved into our minka, it's not that old, but um, it was really shocking to me that we were freezing the first winter before we put in <laughs> double pane windows and everything. Sure, we didn't have yeah. insulation. And then we said to one of the remodelers, oh, we probably need insulation. And he pulled up our tatami and it had nothing underneath. There was no floor, it was just a straw. So we're like, no wonder we were freezing. I'm amazing. You're, I am amazing. You didn't fall right through. Well, in Ia, where we had only the wooden floor with gaps between it, in, in the winter, the wind would come up through the floor, you know. Yeah, that's what we had. Yeah. yeah. So you need some kind of insulation under your floor. Uh, but I happen help. to love wooden floors, but I wouldn't say that's an absolute. And there are rooms that are really designed with tokonomas and so on that are designed for tatami and should keep them. And so it's very much case by case. And maybe one particular room or area would be wooden and the rest might be tatami. Are there different ways to do it? Yeah. Uh, one of the nice things to see in Stuart's house and some of the other houses that I saw uh, hmm. is rule breaking. Now, when I visit traditional houses or tea ceremony houses, yeah. um, nobody ever uses the Ngawa. 
But no. it's so nice to see people putting chairs there and using it if that works for them. Like make your house work for you. I love that. Oh, yeah. Well, the end gala, you can do all kinds of wonderful things. So Stuart has made it into kind of a, a reading nook, you know, with those windows. And he looks out um, uh, over, you know, looks at that pine, that beautiful, sorry, uh, the cherry tree right across the way there. Um, or um, what what I've often done and, and here in Kameoka I did is incorporate uh, the Engawa into the main room. You could do that. Uh, or... What we, which we do in some of our rental houses, the Engawa actually becomes a corridor that allows for some privacy so that somebody staying in room A doesn't have to walk through room B, you know, to get to the bathroom or something. And so there's so many uses of it. Again, uh, it's it's a kind of like a, a, a puzzle. You know, what are those puzzles where you have to move the empty spot? You have to slide things around so that the empty one gets from one corner to the other. It's like that. So Japanese houses with the sliding doors and the spaces that can be one thing or another, it's a matter of how you rearrange spaces. Yeah, I love that. Um, and this is something I saw in Stuart's house. I saw in a bunch of other Minka, and I'm always looking for, I would love to collect something like this. I also saw it in your Chiori, I believe, is it's uh, a, a wooden store. Right. It's some kind of shelf, but it has a functional beautiful yes. design i love that well these are called tansu but in particular this type is what they call a mizuya tansu and a mizuya is just the old word for a kitchen space for example the mizuya of the tea ceremony is the part behind that the guests never see where they're washing the bowls and doing things like that. So a mizuya dansu is a place that you keep crockery and uh, things like that. And I use mizuya dansu in Chiori and here in Kameoka. They're wonderful objects. And isn't that that design, which is actually the handle that you have to slide. That's it's right. Been, it's so wonderful. It's so magical. I feel like a kid again when I'm trying to figure it out. Yeah, well, it's it's classic kind of, I call it origami design, you know. <laughs> it's something that you look at and then it turns out that slides and then something else moves. And uh, and you see that in the Mizia a lot. Yeah. Another thing I saw in a lot of the Kuminka, but not too much, is uh, Stuart has rescued a lot of antiques and items from houses which were about to be demolished. Yeah. And I know that you do this. Alex, when you go by a house about to be demolished, you will save the central beam or you'll save something. Everything that we can, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can't we create a, some kind of business system that is, is actually a working part of the economy to save these things, which are valuable? Well, when it comes to, to uh, structural things like beams, that business already exists and is growing, and it's called kozai. kozai. Kozai means just old materials. Kozai banku. And there are, uh, in fact, I think there was, I met someone at the Kominka Summit who, was, who runs Dorothy. a kozai. Yes. Dorothy, she created her Zen center yeah. from the kozai bank, yeah. Yeah, and so you can if you need doors or you need beams or you need almost any kind of a part of an old house. You can go to these Kozai Banku and find just fantastic 
timbers and uh, it, uh, all of those things. So there are people that collect them and deal in them, and they're more now than there ever were before. So that was a pretty, let's say 10 years ago, that was pretty rare. And now I think it's many more Kozai Banku, you know, or Kozai Sokos, Kozai storage uh, exist all around Japan. When, I, when it comes to the other objects, then uh, it's more difficult because unfortunately, the, the, the need in modern Japanese society for beautiful old lacquer and buckets and all those lovely things that come out of these houses is really slim. And so it's very hard to find buyers for these things. Um, I, th I think the Kominka owners, um, but maybe if more and more people are living in Kominka, uh, there will be more people that appreciate or, and are even able to use these things. Yeah, that would be wonderful, wouldn't it? But don't you, I mean, you must do this all the time. You walk through flea markets and you're like, oh, if I could just take all of this and export it abroad, I do really well. You know, like there's a lot that's not well, appreciated here, right? Yeah. Well, there are people that have been doing that for decades. Those uh, Mizia Dansu, the Tansu that we were talking about, um, people have been putting those in containers by the 100 and sending them to California and Australia uh, for now for decades, which is why there are actually relatively few left in Japan. So an awful lot of this already has left Japan. So that's interesting that you said not only the dismantling of the Minka houses, if it's about to be demolished and it's still good. Like for me, that was the first time I heard that. And there was such a revelation. That's a, such a better solution than just destroying it. Um, mm. And then people were having a, a conversation about, of course, you can do that within Japan as well. If you don't, if you see a house, but you don't necessarily want to live in that area, you want to you live in another area, you could send it around Japan as well, right? Oh, but that's been done for all along. And I remember that the moving of old structures uh, is is uh, has quite a tradition here. And you go to uh, Nara and you'll see a Heian Palace that was moved in the year 1100 or something from Kyoto to Nara. And Kyoto temples are filled with bits and pieces of other temples and palaces or whatever that had been moved because with no nails and all just fits together. You take the whole thing apart and move it. Uh, that's what David Kidd's was intended to happen to David Kidd's house. Uh, Takeshita-san took it down, uh, every single piece of it, and it was all being stored uh, out in Sonobe, uh, up the road from here. And eventually it all disappeared <laughs> because they just never got it moved in time. But if they had, it could have been done. And uh, there are many, many, and I'm sure you've seen them, restaurants in Japan and hotels, which are uh, basically Minka houses that have been moved from Niigata or Gifu or something like that to another location. So that's actually pretty common. Uh, sending them abroad is is... Well, it's much more expensive, so there's been a lot less of that, but that's growing now too. Yeah. That was incredible uh, to see all the how it was taken apart so carefully, and because it's not fitted together with nails, it's just the joinery is so beautiful, and it can be taken apart and re-put together. It's just so beautiful. I just love that part of Japanese traditional carpentry. Yeah. Just oh, make yeah. sure you've numbered them all properly. Yeah. <laughs> 
but that was incredible talking with Andrea because they they wrote all this beautiful in Japanese yeah. all the labels and mm -hmm. then they sent it to Oregon and whether they could read it or not was a challenge, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, luckily yeah. they had a Japanese speaker there. <laughs> but you know, when you go to these Kozai Banku and you see the old beams, many of those old beams started out in some other house. They've been through several generations of reuse. And you'll see on them notations that say Kita or Minami, nor you know, north, south, or um, you know. Uh, West Wing number three or something like that. And so they were already working that way. Yeah. And uh, another revelation, of course, John Stolenmeyer and their amazing uh, carpentry in Okayama. Mm. Um, they're making new kominka and minka, which it's wonderful to see the traditional techniques with new wood. If people mm -hmm. want a new house, they're doing renovations. Yes. in the traditional style, but also building new. I thought that was great. Oh, that is great. And that's kind of what needs to happen as well, because otherwise all these tech, the tech, there he is, our hero. Otherwise the techniques get lost uh, and people don't know anymore how to build a house out of wood. And so now that's another important aspect. Yeah, I, I don't have a picture of his partner, uh, Somakosha, uh, that they're partners in Okayama, but I was really moved by his talk. And he was saying how he really appreciated being let go by his mentor who taught him. He was an apprentice for many mm. years. Mm. And then he wanted to start his own business and he was allowed to start his own business. And I think a lot of people don't realize that this is a big deal in Japan, right? Yeah, you know, in the old days, I think they were a little bit more enlightened about it. If you had a, a really qualified and hardworking and loyal disciple, then eventually you did what they called noren wake, uh, which means dividing the noren. Noren, you know, are those banners that hang at your, your shop front. So a noren wake is where now the other one gets to take his own noren and start his own thing. And you would allow them to do it. And, and there was, I think that was part of, uh, that was the concept. I think in more recent years, they've gotten more jealous of their territory and less willing to let people go. So it's more rare now. Uh, also in your talk, you were talking about uh, the slow life and mm -hmm. uh, the the book that really inspired me to go to Tokushima and to visit Kamikatsu, The Abundance of Less. Uh, Andy, Andy Couturier's yeah. book. It's yes, he, you know, he that is a real labor of love that he worked on for two decades. And he used to come up to Ia. I met him up at Chiori, boy, 30 years ago, I think. And he was already working on that book and talking to the people, so we're talking three decades, uh, talking to the people who had moved to Kamiyama and to other places and who were wanting to go back to nature, wanting to get away from uh, the, the kind of the pull of, of busy Japanese cities and all of that and bringing up families and children or creating their art. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable story. I, I so, love it. And one, it one, one, yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, well, one of the reasons I brought that book up is because 
you know, there's so many different reasons why you might want to live in a kominka, and some of them might, as they were for Hamada Shoji or or my mentor Shirasu Masako or David Kidd, very aesthetic, or me too to some degree. That they're beautiful, right? That's one aspect. And then another aspect is a business aspect. A lot of people doing Airbnbs and basically real estate business with these things. And that's legitimate. And, and that's actually whatever saves these houses, you know, I'm all for it. So that's good. Uh, but there's a, a, another part of it, which is people who really do want to farm, want to live with nature, uh yes they see that the houses are beautiful but they're not into the pretty pretty aspect so much as simply listening to the the insects chirp and uh, watching the rainfall and going out and tilling the field and cooking some natural food and that's been an important reason to live in machia uh, in kominka and so that that was another kind of point i wanted to make and andy's book really delves into that yeah I, I love the the people that he's he's given insight into their lives mm. and how simply they live and yes. basically they don't need money like it's all barter and trade it's powerful yes. yeah uh, great comment from Jackie on YouTube please talk about Nakaniwa I have always wondered why with the love of sakura why not have a sakura tree instead of matsu. <laughs> Um, well, uh, first of all, you wouldn't e usually see uh, a sakura tree in a nakaniwa because they grow too big. Uh, they're not easy to prune and all of that. And if, if you keep them too small, then they look a little bit bare and sad. So if you want that rich lushness of those gorgeous sakura, you're going to need space for it, would be my quick answer. And of course, the other thing is that matsu are the auspicious tree because they're evergreen. And there's many a Zen saying and poetry and so on about the green, the everlasting green of the matsu. And also the other reason that matsu are loved is because they lend themselves very much to bonsai-like pruning, right? The thing about a nakaniwa is that it's small. I mean, it might be just the size of one or two mats, right? And so the kind of trees that you're going to grow successfully in a nakaniwa are one way or another going to be a little bit bonsai-ish because you're going to have to prune them to fit that space. And matsu lend themselves perfectly to that. Yeah. Uh, Nakaniwa, for anybody not familiar, is the inside the private garden in a typical machia house in Kyoto, right? Yes. Well, in any other kind of, but machia especially, because they were long and narrow. And so there would be just one, you know, these tiny spaces and Often these houses are made of actually consecutive structures, let's say two or even three structures lined up in a row. And so between them, as you move from one section to the next, there's space for a little bit of, of air and light and maybe a corridor running down the side. And so some of those machia that we did in Kyoto had two or even three little nakaniwa between the different parts. Yeah, I love them. They're gorgeous. And they give you that little bit uh, extra calm as you're around the house with the natural yeah. light coming in, right? It's light and also a touch of nature coming into the city because Machia are really city, they're townhouses. And, they, and outside, if you step outside, there's a busy city out there. 
So it's this touch of nature as well. Yeah. And I love the matzo trees. I think you're right. Um, I was charmed when I, I visit traditional gardens and I love when they wrap them in the straw. Yes. Like, and I asked the gardener, is it just aesthetic? And he said, it's to catch the beetles. Yes. Uh, yeah. Traditionally. And then at the end of the season, they would burn them to yes. keep pests out. So it's practical as well as beautiful. I love it. Well, actually, it's it's 99% practical. And like all of these, and this is kind of the secret of Minge. This is why the Minge movement really started. They said, look at these things, like like a bit of straw around a tree or a, or a hoe or a bucket that are truly practical. They have a purpose and a daily use, but they've turned them into objects of beauty. And that's what Japan does again and again. And that's what makes these things so interesting. So they were never put on just to be pretty. They had they they began with a reason, and they made it beautiful. Yeah, uh, we have a great comment here, and I think this is a very common question for you, Alex. Yes. Uh, Azizi San in LinkedIn says, "I think the fact that it's not just a foreign-led movement is very encouraging." Now, in your keynote, you did talk about how foreigners had influence yes. on the Minge movement mm -hmm. or the, the Minka movement. We saw yeah. mostly foreigners mm -hmm. were there at the Minka summit. Yes. Uh, do you want to touch on that a little bit? Well, it's both. And that makes it very unusual in Japan <clears throat> because it's, I would say that uh, the, the, the Minka movement is rare in that it's one of the few areas in modern Japanese society where the foreigners have actually had a leading role. And uh, and that goes all the way back. Uh, th that little award that they gave me uh, was actually uh, called the, the Weatherby Aurora Award, named after Meredith Weatherby, who uh, founded uh, Weatherhill, and they were the publisher of Japanese book, tabletop book, uh, books, coffee table books for, for decades until Tankosha, the tea ceremony publisher, bought them. And he moved a kominka into the heart of Tokyo in Roppongi. And I used to actually stay there in the days, you know, when, when uh, Meredith was still alive. And so that, people like Meredith, and then you had David Kidd and the others, uh, John McGee, and the other people that I talked about, they kind of spearheaded this. Along with, there were the Minge and cultural people such as Shirasu Masako. And nowadays, I would say the Japanese that are doing it, a lot of them are young people that are uh, finding that, that, that living in the country, A, it's much cheaper. B, there's a kind of romance of the countryside that their parents certainly didn't have, but that they're rediscovering. So yes, it, it, there is a big Japanese component. Uh, for example, these uh, Akia Banku, uh, the Akia, of course, is an abandoned house. And because there's so many of them, a lot of these uh, uh, re rural towns have set up what they call Akia banks, which is a registry, basically, of the empty houses in their district. And young people moving, for example, to Kameoka are able to make use of that. They can go to the city office, and the city office will, show, will give them the list, show, introduce them to the owners, because they're trying to get young people to move in. And they do. A lot of them do. We've had hundreds of young people move into Kameoka the last few years. 
That's wonderful to hear that it's it's working. Um, that's one of the things that a lot of people were discussing at the Minka Summit about the community aspect and fitting in and maybe going and visiting a few times, maybe renting a place before buying because often the Akia Bank has listings, but once you spend more time there, locals start to tell you about the better options that <laughs> might be available to you, right? Yeah, yeah. that's right, yeah. <laughs> now, uh, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Alex, is the combination of keeping the old, like it was wonderful to see these old tools hmm. that John and his partner had brought from Okayama and showed us how they still use them hmm. to make this beautiful uh, cuts and artwork <laughs> on the wood that you do not find in any modern house. And yeah, those, thing, those, things the, aren't, those things yeah. aren't timber, they're sculpture. Amazing. Yeah. And then in contrast, in the same Minka Mall area, you have robots that will go under the house to check if the beams are safe or if there's any damage. So we have a declining population in Japan. Um, it seems difficult to pass on the traditions of artisanry or craftsmanship. And a lot of the officials are turning to technology Where's what's your take on this for the future? I'm for both. I love the traditional techniques, and there's some things that can never be duplicated, uh, such as the way they cut those beams with those particular implements. And you know, people will go on restoring houses, building houses. Uh, you know, no matter what the population of Japan is, so there is plenty of room to pass those things down if people just value the houses. That said, we live in this modern age. There are all these wonderful technologies out there. Let's use them. And so I don't insist that somehow we go back to the Edo period. And all of my houses, when we can afford it, have um, uh, you know double-paned glass. Now, they can make them with wood frames, which is really beautiful. So you can still make them beautiful, but it's modern technology. Uh, we use, you know, air conditioners and uh, all the techniques that, that you can find. And so I'm so for, for these technological innovations and they can only help. And you combine the two. I think they can go together. In fact, if I can be kind of a little philosophical <laughs> about it, the key is pulling these houses into the modern age, making them not houses of antiquity, but houses of now. That's my take. And that's how they'll be saved because trying to keep them as a, as a showpiece, the way people used to live before we had electricity and medical care and you know all the rest of it, no one can live that way. No one would want to go back to that. At the same time, throwing away this marvelous artisanry and the, you know, the value, valuing of traditional beautiful materials and all that, throwing that away for just plastic and tin is, you know, such a, a loss of heritage. And so you need to combine the two and people are doing it. It can be done and it's done every day, but hundreds of people around Japan are doing this. And so, uh, so I think that's, that's just the way to go. Yeah. 
I also wanted to ask you about uh, this idea of sending minka abroad and then it's appreciated and there's passion for it abroad. And then that might come back to uh, helping the movement in Japan, which often happens with artists and many things that sure. go away and come back yeah. even more popular. Do you see that happening for Minka? I think that's very likely. Yeah. Uh, just like those Japanese gardens in Oregon and California, and then people want uh, to come to Japan and see the originals. And so I'd say that's absolutely going to happen. Yeah, wonderful. Let's hope so. Uh, we have some great comments. Dave says, hooray for slow life. Uh, Neko Hakase saw my kitty. Yes, we had a little visitor with the kitty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have a little bit less than, or oh, about eight minutes now. Alex, is there anything we haven't talked about with the Minka Summit you wanted to talk about? Um, let me think. What would be... I, I suppose... love seeing your calligraphy. And <laughs> that, 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 your that was signing. That was lovely. That, that was great fun, having my own booth. I don't think I've ever had a booth before. Let me uh, see. I've got a picture that. of you here. There's your booth. Ah, there I am with trustee Adam, who uh, on uh, the tall, skinny one on my uh, right, who helped me manage the whole thing, and David Capra, who's living in the out, out, absolute uh, end-of-the-earth part of Nara Prefecture and has been very active up there. I would love oh. to go visit him. I've seen some of his photos too. Um, but you you had your books in multiple languages. You said you were sad you didn't have the Polish version because we had some visitors from Poland. And I, and I should have brought my Italian version for Jacopo, who the, the, uh, of the, the bath maker who is right next to me. Yeah, I only brought English and Japanese. <laughs> I, I suppose if there's anything else to talk about, it would be, uh, to think what happens now when the tourists start coming back again. And my concern, you know, I'd written this book called uh, Kanko Bo Kokuron, which means destroying the nation with tourism. Uh, a kind of takeoff on the standard phrase, which is Kanko, uh, kanko Rikoku, establishing the country on, or building up the country on tourism. And I'm all pro-tourism and it's tourism that is going to save these local towns, no question. And so it's good for Japan. But we know that before COVID, things in many places like Kyoto were really out of hand because it was not managed. And so that's going to apply to Kominka too. And so I'm a little bit concerned if this boom then becomes a kind of international real estate frenzy <laughs> and people are in it just for the investment and it all becomes, you kind of have driven out the locals and it's all one big Airbnb fest, right? And so let's think about as Kominka, our, our Kominka cult, you know, uh, think among ourselves, what would be guidelines? What, how do we think this should go? That, that to me is a concern that doesn't seem like it's on anyone's horizon at the moment, but I can promise you that it will be. That was actually something that came up when I talked with Ed the other day, Ed Stratum, who's renting out some Kominka in Nagano. Mm -hmm. 
And he was saying, we don't want it to be a Beso village. We yeah. don't want this to all be second homes or yeah. just yeah. holiday homes. We really want to build back the community with people who want to be here yes. and want to live here and contribute to yeah. the community. And I think that's very valid concern, right? It's a huge concern. And I can see, uh, you know, one can see a scenario in which, you know, there's a lot of money washing around the world and uh, home pro values in America and in Europe are just astronomical now. And Japan is cheap. It's one of the only countries in Asia where foreigners can easily buy land. Now, what with uh, all the internet attention that's being paid to it and this kind of buzzword that it's become, one can imagine uh, this thing rapidly going to the point that that maybe it, it becomes uh, not so sustainable. And so, yeah, that's a concern. Everything in balance. It's so difficult, yeah. right? Not to go the extreme on everything. Yes. <laughs> once, once it looks popular, go the extreme way is not going to be the right way. That's um, right. Neko Hakase, great question. She says, is your book available in English? Well, uh, uh, Kanko Bokokuron, the, the, uh, no, it is not. And I keep thinking I should put it in English uh, because uh, here's the thing. It sounds like it's some kind of an attack on tourism, but it's actually not. What I say in that book is tourism is important and valuable for Japan. It just needs to be managed. And the book then describes management techniques. Here are the different things that you can do, reservation systems. Here is what you can do about signage. Here's what people are doing about access and that kind of issue, uh, which in Japan there has been pretty close to zero thought about because it was just simply pack those numbers in and the more, you know, the more people came, no matter how the town got trashed or the temple got uh, degraded, that was all fine because the money came. Uh, that's not the way a sustainable or healthy industry should be run. And so that's really my point. So maybe uh, thank you, who, whoever asked that question. Uh, thank you, because maybe I will sit down and go ahead, finally put this thing in English. We, we need it. We need it in English so badly. Um, and actually, there has been an announcement this week that the borders are opening in June next month. Well, you know, I love these Japanese uh, announcements because they're never what they say they are. And so that needs to be rewritten as the borders will not be opened next month, except to a few limited group tours. If you read between the lines, they're not opening to single travelers, you know, group yeah. tours. I mean, think which, of the expense. And the that worries me, right? Because that means they're priority, prioritizing yeah. numbers. Above oh, yeah. We're back to the numbers oh. and we're also back to controlling everything because the group tour people are not going to be able to get one inch off the official uh, track, right? Uh, they'll be minded the whole way. And so uh, this is not what I would call a real opening at all. Uh, so I think the real opening of Japan may not happen until next spring. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, yes, please translate. Like you guys are saying, everything is about balance. That needs to be understood and appreciated on all sides. I, I think I'm with you, Alex. There's so much 
positive potential that can happen, especially for rural communities Yes, through yeah. tourism, through slow tourism, like you mm -hmm. have shown mm -hmm. from your beautiful remodels of old houses mm -hmm. and some places that people want to go and stay for. Can we make it minimum of two nights, please? Yes. You know? yeah. So there are ways to do it. It's about how you manage it, uh, management techniques. And I think villages in Nagano or even Hanase or whatever could have guidelines. I mean, there are ways to do this. Um, and, and I think we're within a, pre a shorter time than we imagine, we're going to have to really start thinking about it. So we just have another minute. Maybe we can have a follow-up talk next month and just talk about tourism. I would, I would love, that. love to. <laughs> <laughs> when the groups start coming in, let's talk about it. That would be great. Yeah, well, that is my subject, actually. And uh, tourism is, is a completely fascinating thing. And it has, it has already transformed Japan. Because there really wasn't, I mean, ten, even 10 years ago, you could say that Japan hardly had any significant inbound tourism. And then it exploded. And of course, COVID put a stop to it. But once the lid opens, they'll all come back again. And, uh, and, and it has some very good impacts on this country, as well as some downsides. And so trying to, again, keep it in balance is the problem. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just in closing, thank you so much again to the wonderful organizers of the Minka Summit in Kyoto this year. It was a fabulous event, and I really hope they do it again every year. Don't you think, Alex? Well, I've talked to Stuart about it, and, and I suggested that why not do it uh, biannually, make it a biennial. Uh, but but again, if it's every year, I'll go. <laughs> I loved it. So whenever they do it, I'll be happy. Wonderful. Uh, great comment from one of the organizers, Wendy here. Great talk. Please keep coming back, Alex. Would love to hear more of your views on tourism. Great. And uh, we definitely have to do our next talk. Yeah, definitely. Let's try to do it once a month. I love talking to you. I like that idea. Good. Thanks so much, Alex. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye.